You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. verses um, 5 through 12, but we're really kind of going to observe the the majority of the chapter. And so if you haven't been here the past couple of weeks, let me just set up Acts really briefly for you. Essentially, um, Acts is uh, the continuation of the story, right? So it's written by a guy named Luke, who also wrote an account of Jesus's life that we know as the, the Gospel of Luke, right? And so this is just the continuation of that story, what took place after, right? So uh, Jesus, for those of us who believe this happened, right, rose in victory over Satan, sin, and death, and he appeared to his followers afterwards, right? And he, he spent probably a period of about 40 days um, among them, teaching them, instructing them, right, encouraging them, proving to them that he had, in fact, been resurrected, right? And then um, in this really weird sequence of events, he tells them, okay, now I'm leaving for real this time. And of course, um, those who followed him were somewhat confused by this. And yet there's this great, um, there's this great passage, this great moment where Jesus very pastorally in Acts 1.8 says, but you, to his followers, but you will receive power when the spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And that verse is really what sums up the rest of Acts. The rest of Acts is showing us how that which Jesus decreed right there came to pass. That's all it is, right? And so what we see is in Acts chapter 2, right, the Spirit of God descends upon His people. It tells us that, that God's literal presence rested on them, that they were filled with the Spirit, and that that was done for a very specific reason, right? And that was to make the gospel known. And so uh, the first sermon of the new church is preached by Peter. People come to faith in Jesus through that. And they now begin walking about sort of this little small region, right, of the Middle East. Proclaiming this good news about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, And so where we find ourselves here Um, Peter and John have just healed a man who had been lame for the duration of his life. And not lame in like the not cool sense, just like can't walk sense, right? Um, And so uh, uh, everyone's like, you could use that healing. Um, (laughs) Sorry, stream of consciousness. Um, So that's that's what happens, right? And then um, uh, afterwards, right, again, the spirit comes in power, does something miraculous in order that they might proclaim the gospel. They do so. And then here's what happens next, right? Chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So here's the thing, right? We we read verses 5 through 12 and we were like, oh, that's great. That's, you know, they're just preaching the gospel. But... It's not just preaching the gospel in the sense that they're preaching it in a context where um, it's not necessarily to their benefit to do so, right? In that, they have been preaching the gospel. They have now been imprisoned because of the fact that they're essentially um, inciting some disunity among the people through this revelatory new truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, it's rejected, right? And we read the rest of the story in verses 5 through 12, where it tells us that the rulers, the elders, the scribes, all of the family of the high priest come together because of this uproar that these, that these um, uneducated, 
right? Unimpressive men have created through this gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they question the disciples, Peter and John and the remainder respond very boldly with this proclamation of, again, the gospel, right? And so here's, here's where we are, right? The, the apostles are currently in prison for the simple reason that they taught Jesus and the resurrection from the dead of this Christ through whom one could obtain salvation, right? So um, this, is a, this is really um, probably the, the first major moment, right, in which they are rejected in such a way that it really begins to cost them something to follow Jesus, Right? Because like Peter preached in, in, in chapter 2, really great sermon, like he preached. A lot of people came to faith, right? A lot of people came to faith at the end of his preaching, at the end of his message. There were a few that said, no, nah, you guys are just wasted. You'll, you know, you'll come down off of that high sometime. And yet this is the moment where they, they're in trouble to the degree that, that it's, it's costing them something. They're in, they're in prison, right? So they've been rejected um, by those in power and by their contemporaries at this point. Now, so we see the apostles here, and we could say that, well, maybe this is just an isolated event, in that in this moment, right, the apostles following God, following Jesus' command to make the gospel known, experience rejection, it's a one-off. And yet, if we look at maybe even just the, the pattern that is being set up for us in Acts, but also the life of Jesus, we can know that, as verse 11 says, that this Jesus is the stone that was what? Rejected by you. The builders, which has become the cornerstone, right? So we, in a moment where the apostles are being rejected currently, they hearken back to the rejection of Jesus. Like they, it's almost like they're not only preaching the gospel to the people in front of them, but they're preaching it to themselves. They're saying, "Okay, Jesus was also rejected. We can, we can hang with this. We can do this." And so in the same way that the apostles were rejected by their contemporaries and those in power in this moment. We see that really Jesus' whole life was comprised of rejection from who? His contemporaries and those in power, right? And we could go on and we could list event after event, whether it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who consistently, regularly tried to catch him or trap him in a moral fallacy, or whether it was um, those in power like Herod or Pilate or the Jewish council of elders, right? Jesus' whole life characterized by this rejection. And not only that, and this might be, and this is just kind of a side note, but this might be the, the clearest evidence that there is some power in the gospel. You, you might not believe it to be the power, but certainly some power because Jesus was also rejected by his own apostles. The same people that are here boldly proclaiming the truth of God before a tribunal, right, are the same people that just a few months earlier had looked people in the face and said, I don't know that man. I'm not associated with Jesus. That's not me. The same people that fled at his crucifixion now stay and proclaim boldly. So not only did Jesus experience, experience rejection, not only did the apostles experience rejection, right? But um, Jesus actually forewarned, like from his own mouth, anyone who would follow him that they would also experience rejection, Right? So again, what, we're, what I'm trying to do here, just in case you're wondering why everything's kind of here, there, and everywhere, is build a case for us that really, like the legacy of the Christian faith is one of rejection. 
Like that if there's any word that could characterize the, 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 the people of God, it's that they, that they are regularly, often, or really at all times, beset by rejection from those around them. And so let me just read a few verses from, from Matthew. I just want us to hear Jesus speaking to us because hopefully it will give us some comfort, right? Um, Matthew 5 verse 10 says this. This is Jesus' first uh, sermon really of his ministry, right? It's, it's the longest recorded sermon from Jesus in, in the scriptures. And this is the very beginning of it, right? So this that typically is pretty important. You start with what's good. This is what he says. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And if you flip just a couple chapters over to Matthew 10, this is Jesus again saying, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And he goes on to say, You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So here's the thing, right? We've been tracing sort of our heritage throughout, throughout really the last several months where we looked at Jesus' coming during Advent and we talked about Jesus' kingship during Epiphany and we've talked about um, the, the establishment of this kingdom, right, that Jesus came to build during Lent. And now we're looking at the expansion of this kingdom. And so Jesus' words here are not just to his contemporaries, they're to anyone who would follow after, right? They're to anyone who would consider themselves a follower of, of Jesus, and so that verse 22 there for us is not just a moment where we read it and go, ooh. It's a moment where it's like, no, that's tr- this is true for me. This is a reality. And so the church, right, you and I, those of us in the room who would consider ourselves followers of Jesus, like Jesus and the apostles did and will certainly experience rejection. It will happen. So here's the thing. I, I find it weird and, and probably... Um, actually a, a sign that much of what we would herald as Christian in the United States maybe isn't, right? But I find it weird that we as Christians are, are so shocked, are so shocked that the world around us is putting a little bit of pressure on us these days. We're so shocked that people think that what we believe is foolish. We're, sho- we're so shocked that, that people find it hard to believe that a... a, <laughs> a first century Jew, carpenter, not only died, but then rose in victory over death, and in that moment paid for all of our sin, every debt that we owed to God. We shouldn't be surprised, quite honestly. There, there, should, be, there should be no sort of um, like uh, confronting moment for us. We, we should have been ready for this. We should have been awaiting it because it's been promised to us not only by Jesus, but we've seen it throughout the Bible. And some of you, some of you might say, well, we've only looked at one little instance in the New Testament, right? Those books written after Jesus and, and one little instance in, in Jesus' life where he tells us about that. But like I said earlier, the legacy of our faith is one of re- rejection even beyond Jesus and beyond the apostles. 
right? Many accounts in the Bible are of men and women who, in order to follow Jesus, are rejected and mocked by family, friends, or contemporaries. I'll just, I got three quick ones that I picked just because, <laughs> um, right? Noah was mocked and rejected for building an ark according to God's command, right? God told him to do something, and he was rejected and mocked for doing so. Joseph was rejected by his brothers and sold into slavery in Egypt. God gave Joseph a particular gift. He exercised that gift, and for that, he was rejected. He was sent away. Daniel, right, rejected by the rulers of Babylon, thrown into a den of lions because he would rather worship God than worship the cultural gods of the day. And we could go on and on and on. But here's what's so strange about that, right? In that typically, like, it's, it's when things get hard, it's when things get difficult, where we really begin to see what we value and what we hold most dear, right? And so one would think, one would think that if all of this was just sort of spiritual uh, blankets to kind of self, get us over that self-help hump that we, that we need to just kind of make it through life. Like if this was just uh, your best life now, if this was just kind of like get you in the right psyche to get that promotion or whatever it might be, then my guess is that when those moments of difficulty came along, um, we would see that, that really, really all of this is just a veneer, right? Like that it would, that it would fade away. And yet here's the cool thing about, about sort of our history, right, as, as the people of God, right, from, from Israel all the way to the church now, right, here today, is that despite a history of rejection, despite a history of persecution, the fact of the matter is that the faith has arrived unscathed in our presence this morning. And so I think that we can reasonably witness that in all of this rejection that we see, in all of these accounts of people being rejected for following God, that it's in those moments that he expands his kingdom over both location and time, that from a small pocket in Jerusalem, we see something spread to the very corners of the earth, not, in, not, not outside of or apart from rejection, but through it. And I think, you know, even if we just took the, the Bible out of it, which I, I'm not prone to do, so just know that. <laughs> um, but even if we took the Bible out of it and we just looked at the contemporary Christian movement, like what is the state of Christianity in the world today, which depending on which alarmist you listen to, um, <laughs> you might have a different like conclusion, right? Well, here's the thing. Oddly enough, Christianity is flourishing in the places where it is most despised. I mean, you, if you were to go to China or to India or any, any of those places like that, I mean, the gospel of Jesus is spreading like wildfire. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm not, this isn't some sensationalism where I'm just like, let's sort of manufacture a feeling of, of confidence in something that I don't really believe in. It's just the, it's the reality like the, that, that numbers and math like, can prove that, that, that that's happening. So again, regardless of whether you believe that the gospel is true or not, the fact of the matter is it, it is it is gaining cultural ground in places of the world that it has no business doing so. And 
then for those of us that are here in the United States, right, the, the bastion of, of Christianity, what, what, what we're seeing, right, and what, what, all of, uh, what all of our outside sources are telling us is that we are, that we are a dwindling reality, right? They're, they're ringing the bell, the death bell, right, the death knell of Christianity in the United States. It's going away, it's fading, and, and again, there's always something to be gained by hyping something up more, more than you should. That's a side note. Um, strike that. Um, but, but the reality is that, that that's, that that's not true, right? That, I mean, things aren't, the picture isn't great for us either, but like, it's not bleak. It's, it's really just kind of stasis. But because all of a sudden right now, we sort of begin to feel some pressure from our, our culture. It's now become less tenable, less intellectually intelligent, less like acceptable to say that these things are true. We think that, well, the wheels have come off. And because we're the saviors of the world, it's coming off everybody else, everywhere else too. And that's just not true. In fact, the fact that we see regularly that the kingdom is expanded by rejection makes me actually, and this is going to sound weird and sadomasochistic, makes me a little bit excited about what's happening in our country. Because what we'll see time and time again throughout the book of Acts, and we're not going to survey the rest of it, but what we'll see time and time again is that the apostles and the disciples of Jesus will be rejected and they will rejoice at the opportunity to be so. Because they know that in that moment that the gospel is oftentimes never more effective than when it is besieged. And so this is important for us, right? Because as... As I said earlier, I think for all of us, again, and this I know general statements don't always work, but for, for I would venture to say that generally for all of us, rejection is in our top five fears. And so the reason that there's this sort of alarmism in the church, the reason that there's sort of this, this insecurity in what's taking place in America that had been this place where it was so comfortable to be Christian, where it was so <laughs> uncostly to be Christian. In fact, it was almost the opposite, beneficial for you to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, right? It's important for us because that's going to change, and yet the gospel's not. Our cultural standing, right, is going to change the perceived value of a Christian moral ethic is going to change. It's going to dissipate. It's going to feel less compelling. It's going to be less prominent. But the gospel will not. In fact, if anything, if anything, the gospel res will respond in kind. In that the difference between a, a, a nominal Christian life and a life that has been radically upheaved by the gospel will become a much more stark difference. The night will become darker, but the light will shine brighter. So, with this being our reality, um, there's a couple of ways that I, that I would like to encourage us in this. So if, if you're here this morning and you're like, God, this is depressing, um, then, uh, then hopefully this uh, will help a little bit. Um, number one, I want us to see that Jesus, again, right, is, we've talked about this um, several times the last couple of weeks, but Jesus is an empathetic high priest, meaning he, he 
understands intimately what you and I go through, like in every facet, in every way. And so rejection, right, this rejection that Jesus promised would come to us if we followed him, is not something that he is alien to or foreign with. And here's what's sort of takes it to a whole nother level that you and I could never understand, right? Jesus experienced rejection from his contemporaries. He experienced rejection from those in power during his time. He experienced rejection even from those that were closest to him, those that had, had spent more time with him than anyone else. But that's not even the chiefest of moments of his rejection. Jesus was rejected by God himself, his father, when he took our sins upon himself. Jesus was cosmically rejected so that we might be eternally accepted in the only forum or court that matters. So we have, we have two choices this morning, right? Because here's the, uh, a bold statement that I'm going to make. All of us in this room, and this is a general statement that is 100% true for every, this is a universal truth. Every single one of us in this room this morning will experience rejection. The choice you have to make is where, where do you want to experience that rejection or from whom would you like to experience that? Because the, the reality is this. Either we choose the acceptance of the world and experience the rejection of God or we choose the acceptance of of God freely given through Jesus and experience the rejection of the world. It will happen in one of two places. Now, this should give great comfort to those of us who are believers in the room this morning. Because what that means is that <laughs> it, in terms of those two places that we can choose from, there's one that's, there's one that's eternal and there's one that's temporary. So we can experience temporary rejection in order that we might see eternal acceptance or instead we can capitulate and we can say, no, I'd rather have temporary acceptance and I'll take a gamble with eternal rejection. And that's, that's the reality of it. And what's so good about that for you and I, brothers and sisters, is that like, so if we have a, a, an acceptance cup that needs filling, right, Jesus has filled it in, in all of his good and perfect work on our behalf, so much so that we don't need anybody else to pour into that. There's nobody else who, like, like you're not operating in lack of acceptance. You have an acceptance that is pure, that is undefiled, that cannot be removed from you, that is permanent, that is not fickle, right? The acceptance of the times will change. America started because people were rejected they came here to live their faith. Now that faith is being rejected by the same contemporaries that came to, to, to build this place, right? I mean, it's depending on when you're born, what time and where, it could be any number of ways for you. And yet the constancy of the gospel is that because of Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection in your stead, which he has exchanged with you for your sins, he has now freely given you acceptance before his father. Acceptance before not just his father, but now our father. 
adopted as sons and daughters. And so my appeal to you this morning is to not sacrifice the eternal acceptance that you have in Jesus on the altar of a temporary acceptance from people whose judgments don't matter. Now, with that said, I I still think there's one lingering question, and that's this, right? Is there any purpose behind rejection beyond the logical argument that being at odds with the world inherently creates tension? Right? So like, if we just kind of, if we just kind of took ourselves out of all of it and just kind of observed from outside, like, why would Jesus do it this way? Like, could we just be done with it? Could you just come and, and reign and rule in victory and just do whatever you're going to do? And can we bypass all of this? Is there a purpose, right? Or is it just like, you know, God, God's taking a break from risk and so someone's cheating on the board, you know, or something like that. Like, my argument is that there is great purpose in everything that the Lord does, but specifically in, in enabling us to walk through rejection. And I think that First Peter 1, 3 through 7 says it better than I ever would, so I'm just going to read it for you. This is First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, and it reads like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I get this. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And if that wasn't good, read the rest. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. Those moments that the Lord gives us in which we experience rejection. And, and look, I know that for some of us, this is real. Like it, it, it may have been a family member. It may have been someone very near and dear to you. It, it may have been, I, I mean, it could have been any number of places, a coworker, a, like you've lost something on this, Right? It's those moments that we can look back on and when we stand firm and when we hold on to the truth that we believe and we we continue to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus in the face of rejection that we can know with great certainty that in that moment we have a tested and genuine faith. That it's just another moment in which the Lord cozies up next to us and says, this is really happening. This is really who you are. You really do belong to me. You really are mine. And even though right now that's put you in a compromising situation, I want you to know that there will, there will be a place in which there is no sorrow, no tear, no sickness, no death. And though now for a little while, 
you are grieved by various trials. It's the tested genuineness of your faith that will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's good news. So what should we do, right? I mean, if the, if the kingdom is expanded and, and is expanding currently by rejection, what, what should we do? Go out and pick fights? No, that's not, that's not at all what I'm saying. Because um, we can talk about other texts that talk about how if you don't speak with love, then you're just annoying. Um, but <clears throat> really resisting a soapbox. Um, Acts, Acts chapter 4, I think, tells us what we should do in that this is the response of both the apostles and the disciples at the time immediately after um, they are released from, um, from prison. And so verse 23 says this, and I'm just going to read through the end of the, the chapter, and I think I'll, I'll let that guide us. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And this is where I would want us to take our instruction from. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So in terms of what we should do, I don't think we need to be Superman or Superwoman. Nobody needs you to be Google for Jesus. But what we do need is to Ask the Lord in prayer that he would give us the boldness that is necessary and that we might receive this filling of the Spirit that serves to make the gospel known more than any other weird thing that it's been conflated with, right? The Spirit is given to make the gospel known. And, and, and one final piece of encouragement would be this. I know that we're young. I know that we're uh, a small church in a big, big city. Uh, in a big, big neighborhood um, full of people that don't necessarily like people like this. And maybe some of us don't know as much as we would like to know or don't feel like we're properly equipped with presuppositional apologetics and everything else that you think is necessary to make the gospel known. And yet, verse 13 of chapter 4 might be the most encouraging verse in the entire, in the entire book of Acts, maybe even. Verse 13 says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So that was it. Like the Greek word here is a word that you would recognize. It's moroni, morons. 
It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were morons, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, my prayer for us this morning as Sojourn Montrose and as, and as believers in Houston and in all the world is that people would see that we have been with Jesus. And when we are with Jesus in prayer and we, when we ask for his spirit and when the Lord grants his spirit, it will be beyond evident that we have been with Jesus. And he will do what he has always done and that is expand his kingdom regardless of what any cultural you know, exegete would think or say. Because this is truth, and it's the truth that sets free. Let's pray.